This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Listen, uh, Romans 8 really, as uh, I've said before, is uh, the big theme is assurance in the face of sin or suffering. And it's very easy to feel guilty that you don't have assurance. <laughs> One of those funny things where... The sermon itself could actually condemn you rather than, well, I, I, I don't often feel assurance and I live with doubt. So always remember, you probably heard this many times, uh, non-Christians don't doubt, they disbelieve. Christians are the ones who doubt. It's a very important distinction. Non-Christians don't doubt, they just disbelieve. It's Christians who doubt. So there is always the experience of, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, And the job of every preacher... The job of every Christian is to speak to the doubt within us. So right now I'm going to speak to that corner of doubt that's in you. Now it might be a bigger or smaller uh, size depending on who we are and what time of the day it is and, and where we are spiritually. But it's an important distinction. So my aim in this passage is to apply this word to that corner of doubt that everyone has. Because it is true. I live with that experience like you. I believe. Help my unbelief. With that in mind, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the fact that you not only want to save us, you want us to know that we're saved. That you're not the kind of father that um, is conditional in, 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 uh, in keeping your children on tender hooks, walking on eggshells, never quite sure whether we're in or out. But it's your heart's desire that we know that we're in, that we sit on the throne with your son, that you're our dad. And that you are for us. And that is the experience you want us to have moment by moment. And yet, Lord, for various reasons, as we'll see, uh, there is a corner of doubt that lurks within us. And uh, in one way, it won't get snuffed out till finally we see you face to face with a glorified body. But in the meantime, Lord, let this work speak to our doubt. May it shrink it um, uh, to non-existence in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm mindful of the generational difference, so I use, I mentioned the name in excess. Would that ring any bells? Yes. Thank you. Yes, I can see a few of you might, uh, uh, still remember seeing in excess the support to Cole Chisel at the Bondi Lifesaver in 79. My goodness, that was a good concert. Um, but, uh, in excess, they're really the top five, one of the top five bands in Australia. And, um, Michael Hutchins, who tragically took his life in 1997 at Double Bay, uh, at the funeral, his brother said of Michael uh, that when he was young, he wrote a list of 10 things he wanted to achieve in his life. And number one was he wanted to conquer the world. A rather modest goal, I reckon. Now, the theme of conquering might be the language of rock legends and generals and kings, but you know, it's actually the language of Christians. Conquering, being victorious. And you see it here in verse 37. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, you're probably thinking, Ray, conquer. Man, I can't get a job and find a girlfriend. What do you mean, conquer? (laughs) Nevertheless, where it counts, you can conquer. And uh, and it's on the theme of assurance and conquering those doubts that may or may not haunt your Christian life. Look, look, think about the chapter, right? It begins on a strong note of assurance, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now... No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's good, isn't it? That's a memory verse. But it ends on an even stronger note in verse 39. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing, zip. So where it counts, 
We in Christ, we conquer. And I tell you why we conquer, because God will have his way in everything. Uh, let's look at Romans 8.28. Um, some people use this as, as a, uh, a rabbit's foot verse. Uh, no matter what happens, you know, it's sort of a misusing it. Uh, whenever a preacher doesn't know how to apply the Old Testament, he'll usually go to this verse. Just a little clue whenever you listen to a preacher. But it's a beautiful verse, though often misunderstood. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the good news is the reason why we will conquer, be more than conquerors, is because God will have his way in all things. Now, when he says all things in all circumstances of life, from pain to pleasure, including persecution and suffering, because he mentions that a little bit later, in the good and in the bad, God is not passively, but actively involved, though never the author of sin and evil. Sort of got to juggle those distinctions. Jesus would say of the insignificant sparrow will not fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. You can't pick and choose where God is sovereign. I mean, he's just sovereign. He overrules in everything. And so Lamentations 3.37. Who can speak and have it happen unless the Lord has decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Oh, my goodness. That's such a strong verse. God works in all things. Now, the promise here is, is for those who love him. So it's a specific promise to God's children. And the promise here is that God has got this stubborn commitment to achieve good for his purposes, for his, for those who love him in every circumstance. That's his single goal. Because the two great temptations when you're suffering is this. Either, and, and it'll be, and it'll be one of these temptations that'll cause you to give up on God's love. One is, God's not really in control. And if He's not in control, if somehow God's hands are tied in any circumstance that have ever happened in, in your personal life or the history of the world, if God's hand is tied, then you're in the hands of evil forces or loveless chance. And if that's the kind of God that you've got in your, that you worship, well, I tell you, he's unfit for your prayers. It is absolutely no point praying to a God who is not thoroughly in, um, sovereign in every circumstance. The second temptation is God is in control of everything, but he's not working for our good. And then God becomes no better than the devil, really. And the promise here, though, is God is working in all things. He's sovereign. For the good of those who love him, he's good. It's his sovereign grace, you see. And that's why you don't have to be conquered by doubts of God's love for you in suffering. Now, the question is, and the place that this verse often gets misunderstood, of course, is what defines the good here? Because so often my definition of good and God's definition of good aren't quite on the same page. One of us will have to change. I suspect it's me. Um. So let's, obviously, whenever you want to understand a word, read it in its context is usually the best way. So the good here is not some promise of a pain-free lifestyle with a guaranteed quota of maximum pleasure, which we'd love to be the case. Where every person you ask out says yes, where every job you apply for you get, where every promotion you go for you secure. The good here is defined in the next verse, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good news is that is about being conformed to the image of his son. It's just another way of talking about holiness, really, being more like Jesus. So this is, this is such an important point. I, I, I sometimes feel like we get it and we don't get it, that in everything that happens to you in your life, whatever else God has got involved and thinking about and planning for, you can be assured that his one single purpose for you is this, that it will help you shape you to be more like the Lord Jesus. That's as good as it gets. You might not feel that now, but I tell you, when you're spinning through eternity and you really know how to read reality correctly, you'll know that with a clarity you've never, you could never imagine. And in a sense, it's not just an individual goal. You notice that because God is uh, ushering in a new family that looks like him. So as we each individually allow suffering to shape us to be more like Jesus... He's ushering a family that looks like him. It's what I call legitimate cloning, uh, Christian cloning. And so God has in his sovereign purposes, and we wish he might have done it differently, perhaps, I understand. But in his sovereign purposes, he has entrusted a quota of suffering for every person here with the purpose of making more like Jesus. And I tell you, it will. if any of us, if you've had any suffering and you've run with God through it, arm wrestling with a lot of tears, yeah, for sure, then you'll know that it has helped you to be more like Christ in a way that a thousand sermons could never do. Christ is not promising Disneyland Christianity. We do not have some kind of force field protecting us from bruises of life. The promise doesn't, again, I'll say it again, it's worth saying, it doesn't explain why suffering is unevenly distributed. My goodness, there are some people in my church they have been to hell and back, humanly speaking. And others have just kind of felt like, you know, they've li- they're living a long life and, uh, and, and, you know, like their life has lived on a bed of roses and then they'll probably die in their sleep, you know, when they're 85. Or, you know, you just think, wow, they, I just can't explain. Now, of course, roses have thorns and so no one ever gets away with, you know, a perfectly pain-free life, but it is unevenly distributed. <coughs> And the danger when Christians try to over overspeak into that world. And that's the problem with Job's counsellors, for example. So, yes, it doesn't explain why suffering is unevenly distributed, but what it does explain is how I'm to respond to it. What's the mindset I'm to adopt? It certainly helped me in a lot of areas. Not the least is anger. So in my book, at the end of the first few chapters, I tell the story of my struggle with anger. And... Um, and, and the thing that was kind of like really surprising to me was this, that if that truth is the case that God is working everything for my good, that means all those people who I thought might have caused my anger were actually being used by God to help me to be patient. <laughs> I completely got it back to front. All those people that you think are actually causing your sarcasm, your bitterness, your, your hurt, your anger, are actually used by God to achieve a different goal which is not to deny that what they're doing is right and all that, but at some level, it allows me to reframe every moment, every word that leaves another person's mouth that's directed toward me. Wow, God allowed that word to come to me, even though it was wrong and unfair and unjust, to help me to be more like Christ. Now, if you like, God is the great recycler. He's been recycling from the very beginning of time. He turns the pain of this world into the fruit of the Spirit. He turns the sins of men and women into the praise of God. I, I think of a, 
There's a 14-year-old. He was 14 five years ago in our church, Jake, and uh, he had a major motorbike accident, dirt bike riding, and you know, damaged C1, C2. The doctor said he was going to be a, a, a quadriplegic on sustained breathing. Six months later, he actually came out walking into church, but that's another story. But he didn't know. Five weeks after the operation, he was in a lot of pain. It was about three in the morning. His mum was right next to him. And he said to his mum, Mum, if it took me to break my neck for you to become a Christian, which it did, if it took me to break my neck for you to become, then it was worth it. Wow. So much suffering, but God working so much good through it. <clears throat> which means, of course, then God can, you know, as def- if that's the definition of good as far as God is concerned, being more like Jesus, then wow. If you happen to have a, a breakup in a relationship and you're on the wrong side of that breakup, if you've missed out on that dream job, um, if some loved one dies prematurely or not, God can still affect good in that sorrow. Now, don't mishear me. It doesn't mean you don't, have, you don't still get to arm wrestle God. That's why the Psalms are there. How long, O oh Lord? And, you know, it doesn't mean there's not a bucket load of tears. That's healthy. But at the end of the day, things aren't random anymore. Now I understand. I've got a framework to understand. Everything has meaning. And I don't have the answers to everything, but I do have this key answer. And whatever else God has for that experience, he certainly has that as one of his main aims. In all things, God's great purpose, so that you will look more like your beautiful saviour. That's the currency of the age to come, you see. Now, you can only understand this fully, I think, if you take that again, the step back and see the big picture. Because um, the, those purposes of God that he now wants to unfold for us really kind of span from eternity to eternity. So you're locating your experiences on a canvas that is massive, that reaches out before time began and, and will go right through into glory. And so here is five words that describe God's big picture. Uh, they're big words. Let's, let's, let's look at them. Verse 29. Now I'm going to abbrevi- I'm going to conjunct, uh, I'm going to bring them together. Uh, so I'm going to take one section out so you can see the run of five words. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. And then verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Five words, five undeniable truths that tell the story of salvation from God's side. So before it's about me, it's about he. Um, This is the one history lesson you've got to get right. okay? And it spans from eternity to eternity. So let's walk our way through them. Uh, They call this a golden chain of blessing, and it really begins with foreknowledge. And it's really describing that before time began, before before God created the world, he he knew you in the sense, not just kind of academically, um, or notionally, he actually set his affections upon you. Um, knowledge, you know, is a relational word in the Bible. So, and so God had entered into a relationship with you from his side way back before time began. So uh, just an example of this. In Amos 3.2, God says of Israel, you only have I foreknown. It's translated chosen, but it's actually the word foreknown. Now, he's not saying, I don't know about any other nation. He's saying... In the old covenant context, of all the nations in the world, I have set my affections upon you. Now what God says, what I said of Israel, I'm now saying of every Christian. 
Before time began, I set my affections upon you. In other words, I chose you. And then God, those God foreknew, he also predestined. There's that nasty word. Nasty. (laughs) I don't think that was a dad joke there. (laughs) Now it's important to say because it's not, no sorry, it's not important to say it's nasty. It's important to understand that predestination is not a theological word, like say Trinity. It's actually a biblical word, so you have to come to grips with it. Um, and it simply says what the word actually means, like predestined, pre-beforehand God determined our destiny. Um, it's very close to foreknowledge. My goodness, uh, someone like B.B. Wolfe said, you can almost barely tell the difference, they're that close. Um, uh, and, and always remember, in, Romans, in Ephesians 1, it's actually the first blessing. In love, he predestined us. Always remember that. Um, I don't know. Have you ever wondered why people... Who likes receiving flowers? Anyone likes receiving flowers? Don't be ashamed of you. Come on, guys. Some of you like it. That's it. Good. A nice waddle, eh? Get you through a day. <laughs> now, you think about it. I'm not, I'm not a, I love flowers, but, you know, to me, I'm Maltese. It doesn't make sense. The thing's already dead by the time you get it. You put it in a... And then three days later, it stinks. That water, I don't know what it is. It stinks. And it's hard to clean the vase afterwards, you know. It's got that... Sl- anyway, then you've got to throw it away. It doesn't make sense. But I pondered one day when my wife likes and I said, I think it's because when someone buys you flowers, if that's your thing, it's because you've worked out that in that person, in your lover's busy day, they stopped, turned their attention and said, I want to do good to my lover. And what we're saying is that before time began, God stopped turned his attention and said, I want to do good to you. You'll be coming home with me on the last day. In love, he predestined us. Don't hate that doctrine, friends. It is a good doctrine. See, every Christian believes that in some way they choose God, okay? We, we make a response to him. And every Christian believes that God chooses them. But I think what Paul is saying in Romans 8 and 9, he's saying that we got to choose God because he first chose us before time began. That would be what's called the reformed understanding of predestination. We can talk about that later if you like. And those he predestined, he also called. So at some point in your own personal story, he put that decision into effect by granting you the spirit, opening your eyes so that you could understand that the one who hung on the cross hung there for you. Yeah, we've been going through John's gospel. My goodness. John's gospel of all the gospels thumped the sovereignty of God and people's salvation. So Jesus will say, No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. No one. Um, Unless you are born of God, you can't believe. And so at some point in your life, and you can tell that story from your end, God had called you through the gospel. And it's a wooing, irresistible call. And those he calls, they come. The hour he called you was the hour you came. You can see this is the story from God's side. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Um, So that because we come and put our faith in Christ, the charges of guilty are now dropped. So we're kind of four-fifths of the way into this story, if you think about it. Uh, So picture it. So two of those first two happened before time began. You were called effectually 
the moment you decided to follow Jesus and then were declared not guilty and justified. So that's where we are. We're sort of sandwiched between justified and glorified. Except Paul then says, and those he justified, he also glorified. And you think, hang on, glory hasn't happened yet. Right through Romans 8, it's, it's glories of a future experience. It's my resurrected body. It's my new creation. But he says, and those he justified, he also glorified. But that's the thing about God. When you, when you work in all things, when you are sovereign, then you can speak about a future experience as though it's already happened. Because God will always have his way in all things. So this is the story, ultimately, of God's grace from eternity to eternity. Tim Keller was asked about predestination. He said that's really just describing God's salvation, God's grace from before time. I thought it was a very helpful way of describing it. That this is the story of assurance that results from God's grace. That there's no fallout. Those That, that, that which him he has foreknown and predestined is the very same group he justifies and glorifies. There's no fallout. This is a love you can't earn, clearly. (laughs) This is a love we don't deserve, clearly. This is a love we won't lose, clearly. You can see what Paul's doing. He's trying to pack as much assurance into your soul as you can bear. (laughs) Now, here's a question. When was the last time you praised God for choosing you? When was the last time you stopped and thought, wow, God, by rights, could have passed me by, handed me over to my hard heart. But in his kindness, he stopped and appointed me to eternal life. Praise you. Praise you, Lord. Okay, well, you've probably worked out, if you haven't already, that it appears then that God, therefore, has chosen some and not all. And you're part of the privileged few. I mean, there's millions and millions and millions of the few, but relatively speaking. And when you know you've understood this truth correctly, when you want to say these questions. You know in Romans 9.14, where Paul unpacks God's sovereign role in salvation? In Romans 9.14, he says this. Well, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? You know, if God predestines and chooses and if that's the kind of God we're dealing with well Romans 14 says well what then should we he's it's a diatribe he's anticipating someone's response that's exactly what I want to say it doesn't feel fair am I the only one (laughs) or in verse 19 Paul again is anticipating the counterpoint right and you know you've understood predestination correctly if it begs this question he says got it here verse 19 is it up on the screen Wake up. (laughs) He's Greek. We've got this thing going here. It's because I'm Maltese. He's got it against me. No, it's all right. Don't worry. Now, if you can't find it, that's fine. Okay, look at that question. One of you will say to me, that's me, right, why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? If God is sovereign in salvation... And, he hasn't, and he's chosen some and not all. Well, hello? Who can actually resist that? It feels unfair. Good questions. They're my questions. I've got the same emotional reaction. It doesn't feel like God's an Australian at this point. <laughs> but whatever problem you and I have with it, emotionally, really we are pushed to the point of being asked, 
Will you let God be God? You know, you don't have to like everything about God to believe. <laughs> like, I think we think somehow I've got to like every aspect about God, which is not to say that it's, it's not right and just, but somehow we always think that I, I'll only worship the God that I like in every, and agree with. Well, that's, that means he's just conforming to your image. <laughs> well, that's just another way of saying you're just worshiping yourself. <laughs> I remember reading the Bible for the first time and really thinking to myself as an adult, my goodness, Ray Galea and God think very differently. One of us will have to change. And I've always marked repentance as being the time where I let him determine what I think rather than the other way around. Will you let God be God? Because it really comes down to will you let him have sovereign rule over all things, including salvation? Because if you rob God of his sovereign will, you will rob him of his sovereignty, of course, and that means he doesn't work in all things. Well, if you've done that, then you've robbed him of the comfort of, uh, you've robbed yourself of the comfort of knowing that he's at work in all things, uh, bringing everything out for your good. Like you can't have one and not the other. God's sovereignty in salvation, my goodness, it is a comfort. It, it begs questions that I live with every day. There's a, ju- there's a hard edge to the sovereignty of God. But that's tempered by the fact that I've got a God who demonstrated his love at the cross that allows me to live with that hard edge. And and I tell you, if push comes to shove and I have a choice about whether human salvation ultimately rests with humans or God, I'll always bank on God. <laughs> a friend of mine, um, this is when it kind of really dawned on me, the, the upside of it all. A friend of mine who led me to the Lord, Anne, who witnessed to me, uh, she... Uh, I said she was from an atheist background. She had prayed and invited her family, her parents, who were both atheists, to church for five years. And then they finally said yes. It was Easter Sunday. All right. And they came. The welcoming was lovely. People were loving. The, the music was humming. And then the preacher got to the pulpit and for some reason until this day we don't know why he started bagging out people who only went to church on Easter and Christmas oh my goodness at the end of that service her parents left vowing never to return to church ever again and they never did now I don't know about you but I tell you what I said to Anne I said Anne isn't it good we believe in predestination because imagine if your parents salvation was in the hands of buffheads <laughs> like that pastor who, who was shocking in what he said. I know that doesn't answer all the questions. But it's because of that truth that God is sovereign in salvation that, that we are more than conquerors. So, verse 31. What shall we say in response to this? Well, most Christians would say, it's not fair. <laughs> but perhaps the better response is, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, the rest of Romans 8 wants to celebrate that assurance and it dares anyone who wants to deny your place in God's plan. So it ends with five questions that dares anyone, uh, it denies anyone's attempt to deny your place in God's plan. So here are the five questions. They're fantastic questions. Question number one, verse 31. If God is for us, then who can be against us? Think about it. If God is for us, nobody. No, everyone. And who cares? Because if God is on your side, we will conquer. 
Because God's purposes can't be frustrated. Oh my goodness, it's so comforting. Let that speak to the anxiety that many of us are cursed with. But when in doubt, always go back to the cross. Question 2, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What he's saying is, if God has done the hardest thing, well, you can be guaranteed, that means he'll do everything else he's promised you. See, the hardest thing God has ever had to do for you, he's already done. What's that? Well, give you his best, his son, when you were at your worst. That's the, the hardest thing God has ever had to do was to watch his son get massacred on the cross for our sake. That's behind him. He's already done it. And if God has done the hardest thing for you, do you not think he's going to give you everything else he's promised? Your forgiveness, your adoption, uh, your, your salvation, your place in the new creation. If he did not withhold his one and only son, do you think he's going to withhold every other blessing? Of course not. But perhaps you're thinking, oh, disqualified myself, sin still condemning, Satan still accusing, guilt still shaming. So question three, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. You can see how securing assurance is a real arm wrestle. See, in Romans 1 to 3, it kind of opens with a courtroom soon, really where God has told basically the whole world, Jew and Gentile, to shut up. <laughs> You're all under the power of sin and all without excuse. But God's not left us condemned in that courtroom. He's justified us. The guilty charges have been dropped, justified, just as if I never sinned. What a beautiful doctrine. That you can know now what God is going to say on the last day. And what's he going to say? Not guilty. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if God has personally handpicked you and then through the death of his son declared you not guilty, well, who's the right to condemn you? Satan doesn't have the right to do it. I mean, um, he may think he's entitled. I mean, he is given the name accuser, Satan. But don't let Satan win a battle when, you, when he's actually lost the war, and he has. At the cross, he was disarmed and humiliated. He has nothing to level accusations against you. He may be shooting bullets of accusation. He's just shooting blanks. <laughs> Satan can't condemn you on judgment day. So don't let him do it now. Satan may know your past, but you know his future. He's heading for the pit. You are not. And non-Christians can't actually level charge against you in the last day. You know, I mean, I know they may say, I thought you're supposed to be a Christian. <laughs> yes, I know. Christians are forgiven, not perfect. <laughs> and they may be able to list a, a, uh, a litany of failures on your behalf that you've committed. It's just that the accusations won't stick on the last day. Now, don't mishear me. Our sins do matter. You know, when we fail to love God and others, it is significant. You know, we actually, and the language is we grieve the Spirit of God. Well, I don't want to do that. I've, I've got a truckload of regrets in my life where I've grieved the Spirit of God. Um, and you should have as well. Like, but the language is regrets. I'm not condemned by them. You know, like you just need to know. Like, you're in Christ, right? You can't make God angry. 
Like, think about that. In Christ, I can't, unless I misunderstood what the whole purpose of the cross was, where God's anger was all poured out on his son, like where God in Christ had taken the judgment, that I can't make God angry. I can grieve his spirit, yeah. I don't want to do that. But I can't make God angry. That's the vantage point. Which, by the way, means Satan can't condemn you. Others can't condemn you. By the way, you can't condemn yourself. I can't condemn myself. I mean, who do I think I am? Condemning Ray Galea when God has declared me not guilty. I mean, he handpicked me. He handpicked you. His blood was washed away your sins. I mean, sometimes we need to give ourselves a good talking to. Shame on us for condemning ourselves. Now, I'm kind of being a little sort of playful there, but you understand? What I'm saying is learn the art of preaching to yourself. We can't, as a preacher, I can't do that for you. I can sort of bring you to the point and minister the word to you. But at that point, you and I have to have our own self-talk. That is to say, apply the word of God to our souls. Still not satisfied though? Question number four, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Um, See, who's the one who has the right to condemn? It's the judge of all the earth. And who's the judge of the earth? Well, that's been given to Jesus. Now, the question is, is Jesus going to condemn you? This would be the same Jesus who allowed himself to be nailed on that first Good Friday for you. Is that the Jesus that's going to condemn you after everything he's gone through? And, 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 and where is Jesus now again? Oh, that's right. He's at the right hand of the Father. Is this the same Jesus who now at the right hand of the Father? What do you think Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father? Because that's his established state now. It's interesting. Like, what do you think he's doing there right now? I know he's ruling the universe and all that. But by virtue of being at the right hand of the Father, do you think he's dobbing you in to the Father? Pointing out your sins, slandering you, telling you, telling the Father, oh, Father, she is such a pathetic Christian, my goodness. She hasn't, she hasn't had a decent quiet time in eight years. Hopeless. Is that what you think she, he's, like, you need to imagine what is the conversation going in heaven right now within the Trinity? Do you think Jesus is saying, oh, Dad, ditch him? He's still looking at porn after eight years as a Christian. No, no, no. Every moment of every day, he stands as your advocate. (laughs) He's not pleading our innocence. He's not making excuses. He's not pointing out your guilt. What he's doing is he's presenting his obedient life. His sin-bearing death, his death-destroying resurrection as an advocate for you. So in the middle of every moment of every day, in the midst of every sin, he is interceding, look at these two words, for you. Not against you, for you. Like, he never moves from that spot. See, what kept Christ on the cross, as we know, is not the nails, but his love. And what keeps Christ at the right hand of the Father is his love that is just stubbornly committed to interceding for you. And what Paul, and this is the, the ultimate grounds of our assurance actually is the love of God. And Paul then says there is no, it's not possible to create a wedge between God's love and you. Uh, and so what Paul does is he kind of scoops up every kind of possible scenario that might in any way be misread as somehow God doesn't love me. Uh, question 5, last question, verse 35. 
Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I mean, seriously, where do we get the idea that if God loves me, I'm not going to suffer? And that's why Paul, I think, quotes Psalm 44 here. Because it's one of those rare moments where God's people have been crushed by God's enemy and they have been faithful. Friends, Michael Hutchins dreamed of a moment where he could conquer the world. But that's just not good enough for us Christians. We are more than conquerors. And, and then Paul ends on really what is some of the most precious verse. You, you want to memorize the verse, this would be it, right? Verse 37 to 39. This stands uniquely within Christian, within, within world religions. Like, assurance is a uniquely Christian experience. Verse 37. No, in all these things, in all these experiences, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced... It reeks of assurance. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's good. If you want to conquer the world, then don't let anything, don't let anyone conquer uh, your confidence in Christ's love. That's holy ground. I said it in the first talk, it's important to God that he saves you. It's just as important to him that you know you're saved. Paul's not saying, you know, I'm convinced because he's sort of boasting. He wants you to be convinced. And what won't drive a wedge between you and God's love in Christ Jesus? Neither death nor life. Die young, die old, either way we die in Christ. To live as Christ, to die as God. You know that kind of, not bravado, but that confidence that the things that people live in fear of is actually stripped away. And you see it, oh my goodness. You know, Bible-believing Christians, we may not live great lives, but boy, we know how to die. <laughs> Les Vidnall, he was my first boss as a pastor. And he, he, uh, he sort of joined uh, in, uh, he came, came to Blacktown Anglican the year I did. By the end of that year, he died. And the day before he died, I visited him in hospital. He had developed cancer. And I said, Les, look, maybe I shouldn't have said this, but I said, Les, what's it like knowing that perhaps in 24 hours you're going to be in the presence of God? And he said, right, I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit excited. <laughs> well, I was a bit excited, a little bit jealous all at the same time. See, that's the language of a Christian. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons. Satan, Satan's mouth is silenced. You know, you can call out to the demons of hell. Who of you will condemn me on the last day? And hell will freeze over before one of those demons will be allowed to speak against you. Neither the present nor the future. In a world where there is so much uncertainty, right? We never know what, quite what's around the next corner. You know, in Christ, our future holds no surprises. And our present holds no fears, no ultimate fears. I mean, I'm not looking forward to the way I'm going to die, but, but no ultimate fears. Nothing will separate me. So be convinced. That's the application. Like, it's funny, isn't it? God wants you to know, to be assured. Um, in, uh, in the late 90s, I, 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 we have a picture of, a, of a, um, a lighthouse. that You've seen this. You've got it here? There we are. Excellent. What perfect timing. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> 
And um, you've seen this before. You know, it's a very famous picture now. It's off the coast of France. It's a lighthouse that just climbs out of the out of the ocean. You know, twenty thirty meters high. And when I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, I want this for my Christmas present." You know, I said, "Santa, I want that," because I I thought, "Yeah, the lighthouse represents me holding strong in the face of whatever's thrown my way." But that's not the reason why I wanted it. The reason why I wanted it, of course, if you can see, there's a man in the doorway. Said, so, "That's right, Galea. You're not the lighthouse. The invincible." Uh, purposes of God, that's the lighthouse standing sure and strong against you know death and suffering and all that, you're the guy in the lighthouse, yeah that's right but that's not the reason why I wanted it the reason why I wanted it is, look very closely you see where his hand is it's in his pocket now, I don't know the female version of this but the, like that's a classic image of a guy who's feeling really kind of safe it's okay, like those waves we had a couple of other ones that can show you. They are hammering this lighthouse. And he is as relaxed as relaxed can be. I said, that's why I wanted that photo. Because, brothers and sisters, that's you and me. I don't know what's coming in your world. Neither do you. But that lighthouse, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his invincible purposes, they're going nowhere. They are sure and strong. So be convinced. It's going to be okay. God not only wants to save you, he does really want you to know you're saved. Nothing and no one's going to get in the way of his love and commitment to you. That's why, with good news like that, you don't want to keep it to yourself, do you? That is just too good to just enjoy for yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are such a good God, Lord. I know we say it a lot. My goodness, there are certain passages that just peel open your your very heart, your strength, your invincibility and your single-minded commitment to your people. There are parts of this, Lord, that do jar. There are questions that we have, but we bow before you, Lord, overwhelmed by the fact that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So as we think about Paul's prayer in Ephesians, as... uh, As we join in that prayer and say, Lord, that we pray now for each and every one of us in this room that we will grasp how wide and broad and deep is your love for us in Christ Jesus. That we may know, experience this love, not just intellectually, but experientially. That you would move it from our head, if it's in our head, to our heart. That it would be intoxicating and overwhelming that we would drown in a sea of certainty and, and that we will know that your love is just without end. It literally takes our breath away. Father, our, our deep desire is that, that we would be jealous for this experience day by day and from that vantage point that that love will overflow into love for others, that they too may know of the wonder of being a child of God, able to call the judge of all the earth, Dad. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.